If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Getting your team up to date on the latest skills required for success is hard work, but you don't have to worry about it anymore. Jolt is an online training platform that helps professionals and organizations access up-to-date training from practitioners at the top of their game. No more watching e-learning videos that are not interactive and may contain obsolete information where you access them. Each Jolt training is done live via interactive Skype or webinar and the trainers are both practitioners and thought leaders in your field. So you get the latest information that can change your business at the right time. Visit jolt.us and find out how you can start getting the right training for your team today. That's www.jolt.us. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. I have a great guest today. I'm talking to Barbara Annis. Barbara is the founding partner of Gender Intelligence Group. She's an expert in inclusive leadership through gender and cultural intelligence. She helps companies like Fortune 500 companies and numerous organizations worldwide figure out how to make their workplaces more inclusive and more attractive for both men and women. Her insights and achievements have pioneered a transformational shift in cultural attitudes across the globe on the importance of gender, unity, and organizational success. I'm pleased to have her on the show today to talk to us a little bit about her business, her life, and what she does to help the workforce a better place for the 21st century. So, Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Could you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in this particular business? Sure. Yeah, so I started my career at Sony. I was the first woman in sales at Sony uh, out of um, 600 salesmen. And um, I was very successful. I won 14 Outstanding Sales Achievement Award, MVP Award there. And one of the insights that I had in my career there was that I actually was being coached and trained to behave more like a male mm-hmm. leader or a male manager. And they actually, in the first year, they sent me to uh, assertiveness training uh, for women uh, in in San Francisco. It was like a three-day intensive called Guerrilla War Tactics for Women in Business. And it, um, you know, I brought all these tools back, you know, boom your boys, you know, spread the paper, crack the first student, all of those different tools that they gave me, and I applied it. And at the end of that year, my manager, when I got feedback, written feedback, he, he said I'd become a very dangerous woman, right? So, you know, they sent me there thinking I needed more assertiveness, and then I applied it in a very alpha male way, and I, all of a sudden I became a dangerous person. So what I got out of that, my big aha moment out of that, was that really what it is about is about bringing our authentic self to the workplace. Because with my clients, I was totally authentic. Mm. And that's why I was so successful, right? Because mm-hmm. I just brought the real deal, me, right, to the table. right? So that was how I began uh, this gender intelligence group, was really to gain that understanding of the differences and how we can appreciate those differences. Great. And now, as you started your company, so you left Sony and then you started this company, um, helping companies um, understand the different issues relating to gender. So talk a little bit about starting up. What were some of the challenges you faced starting the business and then getting your first client? Yeah, thanks. 
well, it was a vision. This is 27 years ago, so you can imagine. You know, mm. I, I went into companies and I said, oh, by the way, I'd love to provide you workshops in how men and women work together, mm-hmm. right? And one of my first clients was IBM Canada, actually. And, um, you know, I just remember they had issues around retaining women in sales. They had done a piece of research called Where Did, Where Did the Women Go? And... Um, and, and they found that the women were leaving, but they thought the women were, were going home, you know, because of personal reasons, but they weren't. They were actually going to the competition or elsewhere uh, in, in, in sales or in other kind of industries. Um, so that was my, my beginning of this. But one of the first challenges I had was getting funding because it was an idea. It wasn't an idea whose time has come at that point, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of... Uh, you know, what, we're going to roll out workshops for men and women? I don't think so, right? So, um, but, but it actually grew very quickly, but I actually had to self-fund it because when I went to present the business case with, you know, some of the banks, they kind of looked at me, <laughs> you know, little eyes glossing over, you know, saying, you, you what? Right? So, but once I had some success stories, you know, within the clients, um, you know, things escalated, you know, ever since. And I've written five books on the topic as well, so. Mm, but it was a hard hard beginning that's for sure it was a hard sell at the beginning but you persisted and then eventually the vision that was too early now became timely because people were seeing um their workforce leaving to go to the competitors as a result of not understanding gender exactly issues. yeah and, oh. and the reasons uh, and, and understand the difference in how to engage men and women right mm-hmm. was another factor and I actually when I first started I had to get credit cards and just maximize my credit cards in order to just get an office and give you know get get, get all of the stuff that you need to do to get a business started right so mm. yeah now what were some of the things people were doing wrong when it comes to understanding women in the workplace versus men in the workplace well one of the big things that they were doing wrong is that we assumed that men and women were more or less the same Right, mm-hmm. so we had this concept of gender equality, right? Uh, you, you hear an accent. I have. I'm Danish, right? So mm-hmm. I was I was brought up in Copenhagen, and gender equality. We've been at that for over forty years, right? And gender equality equated gender sameness, right? Not mm-hmm. gender differences. So if you say, you know, I treat everybody the same, uh, versus I treat people, or I treat people as I would like to be treated, versus I treat people as they would like to be treated. Right. That was the that was the sameness mindset that we needed to get beyond. Right. And of course, now today we have so much research that really demonstrates the neuroscience of gender differences. Mm-hmm. Right. That it's become very indisputable. And, and we have clients who have really benefited from this and have been able to you know, produce better results in terms of superior financial performance, but also really creating an inclusive leadership culture or culture where it's valuing differences of all kinds of differences, whether it's racial or ethnic or gender differences or, or in any other difference. Okay. So now it's 2017 and you've been at this job for 27 years or so. And yep. from what I just heard you say, it seems to me that part of it was mainly a conscious bias and then there was also an unconscious bias. So looking at it from your, the perspective today, has the unconscious bias eased up compared to when you first started out? Yeah, I mean, I think people, see, see men and women look at their intentions, right? And mm-hmm. we all have the best of intentions in wanting us to work well together, mm-hmm. right? 
And, you know, we, we, we use, say unconscious bias, we use blind spots, right? So we okay. both have blind spots, right? Yeah. And, and these blind spots get revealed, right, in the learning sessions, in the workshops, right, where they say, oh, I had no idea, right? So one of the common blind spots, as I mentioned, is that women leave, because of, leave companies because of personal reasons or work-life balance reasons, right, which is valid because women have work-life balance challenges. But actually, when you dig deeper, that's not why they're leaving, Right? They mm-hmm. say that just to be politically correct, you know, and not to burn their reference, etc. Mm-hmm. But they're actually leaving for other reasons. And one of the fundamental reasons, and this comes out, of course, in the workshops where men really get that it's, so, it's very different, right? Men tend to leave for better opportunity elsewhere, mm-hmm. and women tend to leave because they don't feel valued, right, for, mm-hmm. for the authentic self that they bring, right? That value piece is much stronger for women yeah. uh, than it is for men. Mm. So what's the... What, what are some of the advantages of having a gender-intelligent organization? I know you've alluded to one or two, but could you, like, tell us maybe four or five? Sure. Yeah. So what we found, and this, of course, is in hindsight, you know, we measure progress as we, we uh, go through this journey with clients. And we found that one of the biggest uh, impacts it had was on culture. Okay. Right, so uh, around creating really a culture of inclusion, right, where we, again, as I mentioned, value differences. So that was one piece. It increased engagement. It reduced turnover, mm. right? And, and, and also it, it eliminated this um, reason why women don't feel valued, right? So it really was very powerful. The other one was improved uh, decision-making and innovative thinking. Men and women tend to... Um, think innovatively differently or make decisions differently. So, you know, we, we often share this in business school. So when you come to thinking, men tend to use convergent thinking, which is let's focus on, you know, that, that particular unifocal focus, what mm-hmm. are the pros and cons in a linear way, right? Mm-hmm. And women tend to use divergent thinking, right? How can we diverge and what would be the consequences if we do this? What impact can it have over here or here? And the combination of those two thought processes actually improve improve innovativeness and decision-making. And that's what we've seen with many, many clients around the world, that they've been able to be much more impactful when they have gender balance and gender intelligence. Um, And the point I want to make there is that you can have great gender balance and zero gender intelligence, because if you still think and treat and think that men and women are more or less the same, you're not capitalizing on that difference. Another one is the markets we have and clients. We have one client in financial services who called us a couple of years ago and said, could you please help us? Because 72% of our women clients fire our financial advisors within mm-hmm. one year of their spouse passing away. 72%. Wow. Can you imagine? And, you know, and they tried to get them back, and they had an incredibly difficult time to get even one woman back, right? Mm-hmm. So they had a blind spot around how to treat clients, that men and women, uh, you know, appreciate different approaches, Right. And they also made a bunch of assumptions, and that's back to your point on conscious bias, that men was the decision maker, right, in the, mm-hmm. in the dual career couple relationship, per se, or, um, or they spoke to the woman the same way and didn't understand her needs and her interests, right? So anyway, fixing that, um, there's been a huge, um, you know, result in, in when women feel valued as clients, we often say women don't, when women feel valued as clients, they don't join the brand, they don't buy the brand, they join the brand, okay. right? That's how, you know, so for example, my bank manager, I mean, I've had him for 20 years, and I, I think he's fantastic, and I will 
tell everybody about him because he's the best, right? So and that's what women will tend to do. The other thing that's really important is women share, right? So men on an average, when they have a positive or negative experience, they'll tell up to three people verbally, and not online, just verbally, right? And only if it's relevant to the topic. And women will tell up to 32 people, even if it's not relevant to the topic, right? So they can be your best promoters, women can, mm. or not, right? If it, you know, so if you don't, aren't gender intelligent, how you look at your clients or your markets, you're really missing a big uh, part of your superior financial performance results. Mm. And the last one is minimize risk and cost. I mean, we know Uber, I don't know if you've been exposed to what's happening there. Yeah. But you know, this, this is, this, there's, a, there's a 400% increase in gender discrimination lawsuits in the last 10 years. Yeah which is crazy when you come to think about it, right, mm-hmm. in the U.S. alone. Mm-hmm. And it's all based on blind spots, right? Yeah. So the kind of joking, you know, that happened at Uber and the culture and, and, and other companies can really come back and bite, bite you, you know, uh, through a legal. Uh, so, so we really find that, that we can actually prevent that inside cultures when people, men and women have the awareness and know how to be inclusive and not be, you know, uh, you know, using joking or flirting or anything like that because mm-hmm. it does have an impact. Mm. Yeah, and that just ties nicely into my next question because I was going to talk about how um, if you say, if we went back 20, 30 years ago, it's mostly the baby boomers that were more dominant in the workforce, but now it's yeah. more of the millennials and we're still finding the same problems uh, like you mentioned with Uber and a bunch of the other tech startups. So why is it yeah. that in as much as the generations are kind of changing and have changed, the problem still persists. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I was just interviewed by USA Today on Uber. I mean, it's a cultural norm, right? Mm. So it really, really need to, one of the biggest t- challenges, and Peter Senke coined it really well, you know, he said the, you know, the, the only person who can see the system is a person who's outside the system, right? Mm. So when you get into a company and the water that you're swimming in, it's hard to see the water. Right. Mm. And so the, this cultural norm gets created in these high tech companies or Uber, for example, and you, you are not aware of the impact. Right. But if you were to listen to the women, they will see it because women can see the water much more because women value the journey to get to the destination. Right. How am I experiencing being here? And men value the destination. Let's, let's get the results. Let's get the performance. Right. Let's meet mm-hmm. the next quarter, et cetera. Right. The combination of, of those both, you can create new cultural norms. So the companies who are really smart about that, and you, we have companies like American Express or Deloitte, the PwC as an example, they really have a culture where both men and women can thrive, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what companies in Silicon Valley really need to look at. You know, they're talking about things like bring, bringing empathy to the workplace. I mean, those are the, some of the language they're using today, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but, but you really need to transform your culture. And how do you do that? Well, leaders set the tone for culture, mm-hmm. right? So you need to transform leadership mindset to make sure that they're setting the right tone for the culture, right? Yeah. But a lot of leaders at many organizations feel that if, um, for example, they have female subordinates and they want to communicate with them, they're afraid of saying the wrong thing just because they don't want to be seen as saying something that's offensive or off-putting. So they try to err on the side of being politically correct and being kind of vague and indirect, which 
ultimately hurts the company overall. So how can a leader in an organization um, start overcoming such things? Well, you really pointed out something really uh, important, what you're saying there, uh, because it's the top challenge. So every time we do a what's called a cultural diagnostic, right, what we do within organizations, we look at what the current state is, how men and women are viewing the, the culture and the world there mm-hmm. in the company. One of the top ones we ask is, do you feel comfortable, so this is for the men, so men, do, do you feel comfortable giving feedback to men? And they'll score that very high. And then we say, do you feel comfortable giving feedback to women? And they'll score that very, very low, right? Mm. And then back to your point around this risk factor or this being politically correct, right? And then we ask women, and do you feel that you're getting direct feedback for, from women? They'll say yes. And do you feel you get direct feedback from men? They say no, right? Mm, so, yeah. And they want more feedback, right? So that's the kind of the catch-22. And we really need to increase men's comfort level and comfort zone in giving them the right tools and how to provide feedback to women, right? Because women want it. And, and, and it's a part of learning and growing, right? As an employee or as a manager, right? Mm-hmm. So that's something that the work we do inside workshops is really to increase that comfort level because, you know, there's a lot of this gendered harassment training or mandatory unconscious bias training mm-hmm. and it creates this, unfortunately, the downside of that is that it creates this politically correct uh, world, right, where we can't be candid with another in an empowering way yeah. when we need to be candid with one another, right? Mm-hmm. Men need as much feedback as women need as much feedback, right? So that is one, one challenge that we need to create a breakthrough around for sure. And um, would you say that's a cultural difference? Like take, for example, in the U.S. versus Europe versus Canada. When you move to different countries or different cultures, does that change? Yes, there's, there's definitely... I mean, it's so interesting. I had a technology head of um, a guy who's running a technology company who said, you know, help, you know, I have, I have cultural and gender issues, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm dealing with men in sales in, in India, as an example, and um, in Turkey. And uh, the women are complaining about the men. They're too harsh, right? right? They're too drastic. They don't include them in decision-making. They make decisions too fast. The women aren't a part of it, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, what do I do? And I said, well, this, these are the cultural differences that, that also occur, right? In different cultures, people are either more direct or more indirect, mm-hmm. right? So you need to understand that, too, so you don't misinterpret some of those differences, right? And he really got a tons of insights into it and were, were able to intervene in an empowering way so that, you know, you, you to free people up to really be effective in their jobs, right? Mm. And as women start to take on more leadership roles, take on positions on several boards, people, I, look, I think of people like Sheryl Sandberg at um, Facebook, for example. <laughs> With the rise of women in more corporate organizations, do you think women... Um, knowing what they know and what they've gone through over the last few years, pull up other women? Well, certainly Sheryl Sandberg does, so we can say that's a yes. Okay. Uh, but we have found, um, historically what we found is that, and Harvard Un- University calls it the first woman syndrome, that the, the first woman who makes it to the top, like the Kali Fiorina as an example, mm-hmm. HP CEO, didn't pull up other women, right? Mm-hmm. She hired all, she, she, her senior leadership team were all men, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there is that first woman, and, and what Harvard talks about is the second, the second generation women 
will pull up more more women. But I actually think, and this is what this new book is about, because it's for men to read, Mm -hmm. I think we need to engage more men in empowering both men and women, Mm. advancing both men and women, right? Making sure that their teams are gender balanced and gender intelligent, right? Uh, Because men win out of it, right? And that's why... You know, I co-authored this book with Richard Nesbitt, who's a, fi- a famous banker who has been applying this for 25 years since mm-hmm. attending my workshop 25 years ago, mm-hmm. and really has seen this work, that when you have both men and women at the table, it just gets better in many, many different aspects, right? Yeah. So that's why we decided to really co-author this book so that men could really read it, you know, in, in their world in terms of, you know, if you do this and do that, this is the impact it can have. Mm-hmm. And try it out, and you'll see. Yes, and the name of the book is called um, Results at the Top, which you co-authored with um, Richard Nesbitt, like you just mentioned. So yep. give us a few key takeaways from the book. What, like, I just finished reading the book in preparation for this interview, and I understand what you're saying, but for somebody listening to this interview and wanting to know more about what's in the book, what, what, what are some of the key takeaways they can find in this book? Okay, one takeaway is the compelling business case. So there's, uh, there's 60 studies done around the world, mm-hmm. and it's in the book. And out of those 60 studies, 58 of those studies show that when you have greater gender balance, you produce better results in, yeah. in the categories that I've already mentioned, right? Yeah. So that's one takeaway. The other takeaway is how, what men can do, right? Because men, men are action-oriented. They want to know, you know, what can I do to empower women? So, for example, mm. how do you sponsor women, Right. What is the role of a sponsor and what's the role of a sponsee, right? And you can begin to really uh, advocate for women, right, top women. And the third, I would say, takeaway is that really understand the neuroscience of the differences, right? There's a whole chapter on that yeah. that really updates the latest research around the neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Example that I used was that men tend to use convergent thinking, women tend to use divergent yeah. thinking. I'd recommend the men to experiment with that, and also the women who are your listeners as well to really recognize that because sometimes when women diverge, men will tend to dismiss that and there's some richness in that diversion that goes on in terms of the decision making. So that would be the, the key takeaways mm-hmm. that I would say for reading the book. Mm. And um, as we start to wrap up, when, when you were talking about convergent and divergent thinking, I, I just said, okay, let me step back from this and say, Outside of the work environment, like in relationships with, you know, your mom, your sister, your girlfriend, your wife, we can already see that the relationship and the communication styles have to be very different. You cannot say something to your girlfriend and just leave it and walk away. She's going to interpret it like three, four, five, six, seven different ways. Whereas as a guy, I might have just said just one thing casually and not thought about it. And then... We cannot forget that when we go into the workplace, these are the same people that we have back home. Exactly. You know? These are the same exactly. people we have back home that we now yeah. think they transform just because they wear uh, office gear and come to work with us. You understand? Yeah, I completely understand. I always say in, in session, I say, you know, it's not like we have two heads, you know. We have a home head and then a workplace head, right? It's the same head, right? Yeah. So the same things show up, right? They may show up more subtly, in the workplace than they do at home, but we certainly see those differences there, right? Yes. And, um, okay, so I have one more question from the book. So, like, when we look at the top, top level now, we're talking about the board of the organization, and usually boards are comprised of, it's kind of viewed as an old boys club in general. So these are 
probably men that are much older, probably in their 60s or maybe in their 70s, and they're pretty much set in their ways. So how does one penetrate and educate men at the board level in terms of getting them more intelligent concerning gender-related issues? Yes, I mean, I, I am I'm so pleasantly surprised to see that men, baby boomer men, um, really do get this. We've been able to fine-tune the message over the years so powerfully. And, and they'll say things like, and this is not only the board, but also at the executive level, right, inside mm -hmm. companies, right? We, 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 I, have, I can't tell you how many men will come up to me after a session and will just say, oh, I wish I had known this 30 years ago, mm. right? I would have been so different. I just talked to an engineer this morning, you know, who's running operations of an engineering firm, right? And a uh, smart, smart guy, right, who'd gone through the session uh, a couple of months ago. And he said, you know, I had these big aha moments. I mean, I, the only wish I had was if I would have applied this 30 years ago or even 20 years ago, I would have been a different leader. I just mm. didn't know what I didn't know. Right, yeah. and I had the best of intentions, but I, I know now I can do and empower other men and women, right, to really understand these differences and 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 be effective uh, as a leader and a manager. Mm -hmm. And so, going forward, as we wrap up the discussion with work and the book, um, what's the future? What does the future hold in terms of as a society? How? better we can become at being gender intelligent, not just in the workplace, but also in our lives yeah. in general. I, I mean, you know, I spoke to a group of high school students not too long ago and they're graduates, right? And I asked them, and I talked about the teenage brain and the gender differences, right? And I asked them, how many of you can relate? And all their hands went up, right? And then we were in a Q&A. And I said, any insights, any reflections? And this teenage boy, 18, stood up and he said, um, this would end my parents arguing, right? Mm. And another teenage uh, girl stood up and she said, this could change the world. And I said, how so? And she said, because if we stop misinterpreting differences and we start valuing girls and women in this world of ours, imagine what we could do if we had both genders at the table, whether it was in governments, in society, in families, etc., so, you know, Richard and I believe that in engaging more men in the conversation, it could change the world. Mm. It could change how we look at things. And perhaps, you know, reduce divorce and power struggles in marriage and mm -hmm. so on. So uh, that's, that's what we, you know, it's great to do it within companies, but certainly our, what gets us up in the morning is really impacting the world. Right. And as I start to wind down, I have just a quick a few quick wrapping up questions for you. So what got you excited about starting this business? And what gets you well, excited what, every day? What got me excited is the transformation that it brings to people. Okay. Right? That people, you know, I had one woman last week who said, you know, I've worked with this company for 22 years and this is the first time I feel so valued. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, now she did say she wished that that happened 22 years ago, but that's neither here nor there. It's happening now, so let's appreciate that moment, right? So it really, it, it, so the bottom line is that men find the conversation so freeing, right? Uh, like we can actually talk about this, we can have these conversations, right? And we can learn together, right? And women find it incredibly validating, yeah. right? I had one woman in Silicon Valley, we were going through the, 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 gen, the neuroscience of gender differences, and I heard her at her table when they were discussing at the table. She said, oh, and I thought there was something wrong with me. 
you know. I'm actually hardwired differently. There's nothing wrong with me, mm. right? And I was trying to contort myself into being a ma- male thinker, right, or a male manager, right? And, you know, and, and I asked her, I went over to the table, I said, when we regrouped, do you mind sharing that? And she wasn't sure. She was head of legal counsel, right? So, and she wasn't sure, and, and, I, and she said, oh, yeah, I will. And so, so she shared it. And I said to the women, how many women in this room, a couple hundred people, uh, felt that there was something wrong with them and they needed coaching to be, be some, some, some other way, right? And so many hands went up, right? So that's what we need to end, and that's what I really want to leave people with, is that it, understanding means there's nothing to forgive, and once we have that understanding, we can really have men and women work and win together. Mm. And um, what's the most frustrating thing about being an entrepreneur in your experience? The most frustrating being an entrepreneur for me, uh, I don't know. I mean, I live, I travel too much. And I live out of a suitcase. Mm. Um, I work-life balance or work-life harmony is always a challenge. And I think entrepreneurs often think, and this I see it in the research, right? They think that if they take on a, a, a um, new business and they run a new business as an entrepreneur, they'll have lifestyle choices, Right. They'll have great work-life uh, balance, or, or right. It doesn't necessarily work out that way, right? I, uh, entrepreneurs are the hardest-working people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're responsible, regardless of who you have on your team, you're pretty well responsible for everything. Because you, you're the founder, you're the creator, you're the it person, right? So mm-hmm. that that's the challenge in in really creating these competing commitments that I often get into. Mm-hmm. And I just thought of this now, but um, it's looking at the research, it seems like 55 to 60% of women are starting new businesses now compared to men when you look at the new startups yep. that are coming up. So what are some things that women can do to help themselves set, set themselves up for success as they start their new businesses? Great question. And, and women are... The women is the future of the economy in mm. starting their own businesses, I see, in many different parts of our world, right? So really, how, how as the women listeners, can you empower yourself? So first of all, I would go to our website, genderintelligence.com, and grab the seven pitfalls for women leaders and read that. It's a research that we've done on 2,000 women. The second is make sure that you, you really, really build a powerful network of support. You know you need to have a business plan. You know you need to have a five-year plan, all of that stuff. But one of the things that men are very smart about, they, they're very strategic in their networking, right? They'll mm-hmm. say, who are the three or five key people that I need to reach out to that will really support or sponsor, you know, my business, right? Mm-hmm. And men, women tend to just really put their head down and work hard, hard, hard and not be strategic in who they network with. So I would say be very strategic around, so let's say you want to start a consulting business, an example. So who, who is it that's a master consultant out there or that is already running a consulting business that's very effective? Mm-hmm. Reach out to them and find out, get yourself a mastermind group that really can empower you. People want to help, both men and women, mm. uh, young entrepreneurs. So that's one thing that I really think women need to make sure they have. Great. And could you talk about your worst or most difficult experience in running your business for the last 27 years? And what did you learn from that experience? uh, Making choices. 
So, for example, I had a uh, financial services firm that uh, we were doing a diagnostic. I have 51 associates around the world, and we were doing a diagnostic, and we presented it to the CEO and the senior team. And uh, they, they got, uh, the CEO was a jerk. He was uh, resisting the data. All oh, the women are getting paid so much. Why are they saying this? Da, 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 da. Like he wasn't honoring the women's voices in terms of how they were feeling working in the, in the culture and the environment. And I realized that um, I, w- I, I, I could not work with this client, mm. right? So making those choices where, you know, are they congruent with your values, mm. right? So I think as an entrepreneur, really, even if, even if it's a, a great project and, and, you know, and it's a lucrative project, right, make sure that you're working with people who authentically navigate your values. Mm. Uh, and that's, so I chose not to work with them. Uh, and, and I'm so glad I did because it would have been just an incredibly draining experience because it was just so counter what we value. Right? Mm. And for my final question, for people that are just graduating out of college or people that are, are in the workforce right now and they're thinking of transitioning out to start something new, what's your advice to those two groups of people? Make sure that the something new that you're starting is something you're deeply passionate about because you're going to go through hurdles uh, a lot. And, and there, there's research that shows that entrepreneurs, men, uh, this is a little dated, it's about six, six, years, six years old, will start up to seven things before they get successful in that one thing. And one, what was missing was passion. Mm. So make sure you're deeply passionate about it. Not just that, oh, this is a great new thing or... You know, this could you know really you know create some income or money. No passion is what's going to get you there. Then you will stay the course on that one thing, uh, and not try seven things. Oh, fantastic! And where can people reach you and learn more about the book? Uh, they can go to our website, genderintelligent.com, and there is a uh, button there, contact us if you want to reach us directly, and or you can go to any bookstore, Amazon.com and buy the book or through our website, which is genderintelligence.com. And with that said, Barbara, we've reached the end of the show. I'd really like to thank you for coming aboard to share your wisdom in the last couple of minutes. And do you have any parting words for anybody listening out there that may be um, facing some challenges, maybe either in the workplace or in their personal lives, not just relating to gender issues, but just life in general? Yeah, I mean, I think that the most important thing is make sure you navigate your intentions by your future, mm. and whether it's within your family or if you're in a couple relationship, I mean, have a vision for what it is that you want to achieve or in business in general, and make sure that that is an authentic vision and navigate with that because things happen all the time. And when, we're, when we really navigate with our future intentions, we're much more powerful in how to solve for things. Great. And with that said, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show, right. Barbara. Really appreciate you. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great thank day. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources. And we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.